I've not warned Chris, but there is a basic, a basic PowerPoint that's going to appear one point at a time. And all Chris needs to listen to is point number, and then it will appear as if by magic. But first, the story for you. Before we look at Jesus is the gospel, each week as we journey towards Christmas, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, and we look at these four uh, matters of Jesus' person and work. Jesus is the gospel, week number one. Uh, Jesus is our rescuer, week number two. Jesus is our king, week number three. Jesus is our God. That's the good stuff for Christmas Day. I trust you'll find it helpful as we look very briefly at Colossians chapter one. But first, a story. First, a story nearly 280 years ago. There were a group of uh, men from the Church of England. They were Anglicans, and they were very religious and devout men who gathered together just off the Strand in central London in 1738, around about May, according to their journals and diaries. There are men who are familiar to us, like James and Charles Wesley. There was another man who's not so familiar called William Holland. They gathered together night after night in Aldersgate to study the Bible, to pray together, to encourage one another. Because beneath their religiosity, there was a, a big doubt that they were missing out on something. There was a big concern that they understood who God was, and they understand who the, the gospel was, and what the good news was about, but only at a surface level, and they wanted more. We can see that from their journals. One day they gathered together and they celebrated communion together. They took bread and they took wine. And Charles Wesley wrote down in his journal that he was missing out on something. He says, I received the sacrament, but I didn't receive Christ. It's as if, my paraphrase, it's as if I'm going through the motions. It's as if I'm just understanding who Jesus is at a surface level. Perhaps I don't know him at all. William Holland wrote in his journal after an account that was to change his life forever. Someone gave to William Holland, one of the men who was meeting there, a book that uh, was written by a man called Martin Luther. And he gave it to another one of the men and said, please, let's take it in turns to read what Martin Luther understands of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the book of Galatians from the Bible. And he wrote this on May 17, 1938, when he asked, William Holland asked Charles Wesley to read a portion from this book. William writes, William Holland, when Mr. Charles Wesley, I had a way of writing, when Mr. Charles Wesley got to these words of Luther, what have we, nothing to do? No, nothing, but to accept him who God has made for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. William Holland said, at those words from Charles's lips and the pen of Martin Luther, at those words, I broke through the barrier and suddenly power came on me and I knew who he was. William Holland is saying, I became a Christian at that point. I didn't understand it before, but at that point I became a Christian. And what's interesting to me is this. Charles Wesley was there he was reading the same material, explaining what Jesus has accomplished and achieved and done, and yet he didn't become a Christian. Just a week later, Charles Wesley wrote this, Mr. Holland seemed to have found faith that night, but I don't get it. He got it, but I don't get it. A few days later on, on May the 21st, Charles Wesley wrote this, I found it. I saw by faith and I stood, although I'm always sinking down in sin, but I found it 
So I went to bed, and sensing my weakness, I fell asleep, but I was finally confident in Christ. One year later, I know I wish I could have done this, as a baby Christian, Charles Wesley was used mightily by God to write some words down that we're going to sing soon. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. But what I've struggled with is, how come William Holland got it? He understood the gospel as Charles Wesley read these words explaining the gospel from the quill of Martin Luther. But for Charles Wesley, it took another whole week. He heard the gospel explained and he didn't get it. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. And I think we'll understand some of how. In Colossians 1, Paul is talking about the gospel in the most amazing way. Look at sentence 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6 on your sheet or in your Bible or on your phone. The gospel, the word of truth, has come to you and it's bearing fruit and it's growing as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all the truth. It's one thing like Holland and Wesley to have the gospel presented to you. You can understand it, but it doesn't necessarily sink in. Some people will grasp it as God, not they, have their eyes opened. As the Holy Spirit works efficaciously, big word, powerfully, to change a heart and to open eyes. It's one thing for you to have it explained to you, but it's another thing, verse 5, for it to come to you. Notice those words? And here are four things from this passage that we had read. How do you know as we journey before Christmas that the gospel has come to you? How do you know? Four tests, if you like, from these verses all too quickly. Here's number one. The gospel is joy. Look at that. It's amazing technology. Look at sentence five again. How do you know the gospel has come into your heart, that God has worked in your life, that he's working still? Number one, verse five, the gospel is joy. Where does it say that? It says, when you heard of the gospel... There was hope, and out of it sprung faith and love. The word gospel is a compound Greek word, two words that are jammed together, and it means a joyous proclamation, it means a proclamation of joy, it means great, it means the best, it means the world changing news. That's good news that is not told or explained, it's proclaimed, because it's the word of truth. But all too often we can think, hang on, I've heard Christianity explained before and I don't want anything to do with it because I think that Christianity, if I came across it, if I accepted it, if I started to go to church, I would lose my freedom. If I started to believe and come under the kingly rule of King Jesus, it wouldn't be joy, it would be sadness. Who wants to be under the authority of someone else? It would cramp my style, I would lose joy. Freedom is not knowing Jesus. Constriction, that's what you Christians know when you come to church. I mean, you lose your Sunday morning lions. If that's what you think, can I say, friends, you've missed the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity, the core of it, is joy. Starbucks know this. A few years ago, they uh, produced some excellent 
advertising campaign and on the outside of their mug was not a, a coffee bean, but it said this slogan, create wonder, share joy. What a great summary of the gospel. Create wonder, well, God did that. Share joy, only the gospel can do that. Coffee has amazing power, but it cannot do that. I think that's an overstatement from Starbucks. It does not create wonder. It does not share joy, but the gospel can. And here's what Paul is saying as he writes this little church around the Mediterranean in a place called Colossae. If you think that becoming a Christian is a matter of grind and duty and losing your freedom, you've not grasped it. It's not sunk in. You're like Charles Wesley for that week between Mr. William Holland becoming a Christian and when the penny finally drops in his life. You don't get it. It's just a surface understanding, friends. Because one of the signs that you understand the gospel is that there is joy in your heart. Not always, not an inane grin. Not happiness that can pass, but joy that stays. Joy that's not affected by your circumstances. How do you know if it's sunk in or not? How do you know if you've understood the gospel? Friends, is there joy in your heart? Is there joy when you look at the story of Christmas, when you watch a video like we've done this morning, where there's something that sinks into your heart, a remembrance of the gospel? Because the gospel is not vague, it's not a mystical thing, it's a set of propositions, it's a set of truth. It says that in verse 5, it's a word of truth, that when you understand it, when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, it's fuel for joy that overflows and bubbles up. It's the first test. Secondly, it's a power. The gospel, it says, verse 6, is a power. Notice, the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing. When Paul talks about fruit in another one of the letters that he wrote called Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not talking about fruit that hangs on the outside of trees. This is an inner working of God's Spirit so that when someone becomes a Christian, they change from the inside out. Their insides matter more than their outsides. It's talking about character change, radical character change. The first sign that you grasp the gospel is joy. The second sign is power. Your heart begins to change. And the gospel becomes not just a skin-deep understanding. It goes further. And the Holy Spirit goes to work on you. In Galatians 5, it says, these are not all of them, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. So that means... To some degree, if you are struggling with anger, that's because you have not grasped, you haven't got completely or a full understanding, you are lacking love in your life. If you are struggling with discouragement, that's because you are lacking the fruit of joy. If you are experiencing anxiety, that's because you are lacking a deep understanding of the gospel, meaning that there is reconciliation and peace. All of our problems, spiritually speaking, can be solved by a deeper understanding of the gospel, by applying truth to our experience and life. Because the gospel is not just joy, it's a power that comes into your heart and that rewires you. It's new passions. It is new priorities. It is new ways to spend your time and resources. It is new goals. 
No longer will you feel like a, a teddy bear that needs to be stitched together, that stuffing is kind of spilling out. No longer will you feel soullessness. When the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in you, you don't feel soullessness, you feel soulfulness. There's a newness of life to you. Death is not to be feared. You know where you will go when you face the last and great enemy. You know why, not just where you'll go when you die, you know why you live. That if you're not a Christian, there are those deep, nagging questions, why am I here? Who am I? Where will I go when I die? Paul is not struggling with soullessness. Paul has a full soul. Look at verse 29. He says, to this end I labour. I know why I exist. Because I want to bring people to the Lord Jesus. I want them to understand the gospel. What difference does it make to Paul's life, to his nine to five? Is he lazy? By no means. Verse 29. To this end I labour. I'm labouring, I'm struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. My insides are churned up with God's power and I get up, I don't need coffee to start the day. You may have done. I don't need coffee to start the day. I want to see people understand the grace of God for the first time. I want to see people mature in their understanding. I want people to hold on to this world less and less and hold on to the next world more and more. Paul's writings are saturated because he labours and he struggles with God's energy inside of him. What is that? It's the power of the gospel at work in his life. Paul was probably a pretty ordinary looking bloke, but he knew why he lived. He knew where he was going to go when he died. Perhaps he wasn't thought much of, Paul. Perhaps you wouldn't have picked him out as a handsome, kind of six foot four, strapping kind of guy. But he knew why he lived, he knew where he was heading. Why? Because there is power in the gospel, not just joy, there is power. That's not soullessness, that's a full soul, that's soulfulness. And that means if God's power, the fruit of the Spirit, is at work in our hearts, if we're a Christian, if that's the second mark, that means... It's not only the gospel that gets us into the kingdom of God. It's not just the gospel that makes you a Christian. There's not a gospel 2.0 to move on to. You don't move on from the gospel. Someone has said the gospel is not the ABC of Christianity. It's the A to Z, or A to Z if they're American and say it incorrectly. The Spirit comes into you and it produces joy. The Spirit comes into you and by God's power it changes you. And that sends you forward and it sends you out. Why, oh why? Especially when it comes to Easter. Especially when it comes to Christmas. Are we so lacking in joy? Are we so unaware of the power of God in our lives? Perhaps we need to pray that God afresh would show us the joy of the gospel at Christmas. And this little baby called Jesus. The gospel is joy, the gospel is power. Thirdly, the gospel is grace. The gospel is grace. Look at verse 6 with me. There's a synonym here, two words, different words, used to say the same thing. Gospel and the grace of God. Gospel and the grace of God. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it, as the gospel, has been doing since, you, since the day you heard the gospel and understood God's grace 
in all its truth. What is the gospel? The gospel is God's grace to us. Well, look at it in verse 5. Here's the gospel. It says, The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. That's the gospel again. The gospel teaches us and tells us that something is stored up for us in the future. The gospel is not like it's not like a prize that you win if you win the race. Yeah? If we were to have a 100-yard dash and we all kind of lined up, my money would probably be on Reuben because he's younger and probably fitter than the rest of us. I might be in the middle somewhere. I might be towards the end if I got tripped up by my daughter on purpose, perhaps. The gospel is not money that we need to race towards and it's the first who gets their wins. It's more like the gospel is a deposit in the bank waiting for us. It's secure and it's safe. These promises in heaven, these promises of being with the Lord Jesus forever, they are safe and secure and they've been secured by King Jesus on our behalf. If we were to grasp that, anxiety would be far less of an issue for us. If we were to grasp that God accepted us and he's already accepted us in King Jesus, that the future is safe and secure, wouldn't that mean that there would be more joy in our lives? We need to understand the gospel in a deeper and deeper way. It's already in the bank, it's already yours. You're safe and you're secure. Look at verse 6 again. Paul's trying to rub this in. The gospel is full of grace. It's centered on grace. And verse 6 says the word all. Notice at the end of sentence 6, do we understand God's grace in all its truth? Think of the gospel not just as resources that are stored up in heaven for us, promises that are secure of eternal city and treasure that will never perish or spoil or fade. Think of it now as a deep, bottomless well that you can look into, that you can marvel, that you can never fully plumb the depths of. One of the ways that you understand the gospel is that it's joy, that it's power, that it's grace is that you continue to marvel at the grace of God. You continue to marvel at how deep the well is. It always worries me if there are Christians who lose their sense of wonder at what God has done for them. It worries me when I do not, not have a smile on my face, but when I do not think, oh, how the grace of God amazes me. When you lose that, I friends, you're in deep trouble and that you need God to reawaken your affections. Because in and by God's grace, you are loved and accepted more than you will ever truly know, and more than you ever truly understand. The well is that deep. The well is that deep, according to Paul. The well is that deep, according to the pop singer Bono as well. What do I mean? This week I came across a very strange and illuminating interview. Bono, the Irish singer of pop group, rock group U2, who you may or may not listen to or like, Bono had a conversation with someone else about his religious beliefs. They are varied and vast. And he's, he's speaking to an interviewer who's saying, Bono, I don't quite get what you mean when it comes to karma and grace. This is what he said. It's very interesting. Bono says, it's mind-blowing concept for me that the God who made the universe wants a relationship with people. I find that mind-blowing. But the one thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. Stay with me. 
Bono thinks that the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, you get out what you put in. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's karma, according to Bono. It's there in the law of physics as well. For every action, you have an equal and opposite reaction. It's clear for me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. At that point, I completely disagree with him. But then he says something that is remarkable. Listen in. But along comes this idea called grace. And grace upends it all. It upends it all. As you reap, as you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason. Grace defies logic. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. It's remarkable. I love the idea of a sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back on us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point, and that should keep us humble. It's not our good works that get us through the gates of heaven, says Bono. Remarkable. What is Bono doing? He's made absolutely millions and millions of pounds, and what's he doing? I think he's looking into the well. He's looking into the well of God's grace, and he's saying, I don't understand it, it upends the way I think the world works, and that is what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the gospel. The gospel is joy, it's power, it's grace. Finally, the gospel, therefore, is Christ himself. The gospel is Christ himself. At the end of uh, Colossians chapter 1, in verses 23 and 29, there's a couple of interesting sentences here from the pen of Paul. It's all interesting, but here are two very interesting ones. Paul says, I proclaim the gospel. I bring you the gospel. That's in verse 23. I proclaim the gospel. When he gets to the end, excuse me, verse 28, he says, I proclaim him. Verse 23, I proclaim the gospel. Verse 28, I proclaim him. Here's the reason that the gospel is a power, that it's joy, that it's grace. Because the good news is not about Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the grace of God displayed for all to see before the watching world and before the watching spiritual realms. The gospel is Jesus. It's not about him. It is him. What do I mean? Martin Luther put it like this in a famous introduction to the book of Galatians that William Holland and Charles Wesley read. He says, God made Jesus our wisdom. God made Jesus our righteousness. God made Jesus our sanctification. God made Jesus our redemption. Other religions flip it round and say this. Here's the way, and Jesus says, no, I'm the way. Other religions say, here's the truth, follow it. Jesus says, no, I am the truth, follow me. Other religions say, here's how to be a righteous person. Do this, and God will be pleased with you. And Jesus says, no, I am righteousness. If you want to understand the New Testament, if you want to understand Paul's writing to the book or the church in Colossae and Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus, they always say this, in essence. I have Jesus, but I need circumcision as well. I have Jesus, but I need to add to that righteousness. I have Jesus, but I need to add on this or that or something else. That summarizes 
half of the New Testament. And Paul says, no, Jesus only. No, Jesus is the gospel. Nothing else, no but also's. So here's a question for me and for you. Friends, what are the but also's in your life? Is there something, a habit or a practice that you do that you've added to the gospel? Someone else has said if you add anything to the gospel, if you take anything away from it, you have nothing. There's no gospel at all. It's Jesus only. If you think, I have Jesus, but I add this. I have Jesus, but I serve. I have Jesus, but I work. I have Jesus, but I give. I have Jesus, but I read. I have Jesus, but I help. You are adding something to the gospel that will not save you. It's Jesus only. Jesus is the gospel. Here are the four tests as we journey towards Christmas from the first few sentences of Colossians. If you understand the gospel at an increasing level, there will be signs of joy and power and grace and you will understand that Jesus and Jesus only is the gospel. It's a bottomless well of grace and forgiveness that we always want to plumb the depths of. We always want to marvel at. That's what I want us to do as we look at Jesus in the most lofty passage in the whole of the New Testament where Jesus is described, Colossians chapter 1. He's our king, he's our God, he's our rescuer. He is the gospel himself. That's why in verse 2, Paul can say, to the saints in Christ. Paul knows that Christians stand before God in Christ. And that means they're safe. That means they're filled with power because God's spirit dwells within their hearts. So two questions as we journey from here to the Lord's table, so to speak. Two questions, please. The bread and the cup are a visible representation of the gospel. They don't have any inherent power. We say this every time. But there's a visible, visible 3D representation of the gospel. The body of King Jesus, the blood of King Jesus. Here's what I want you to say as we celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection. Jesus, will you show me if there are any but also's in my life? Will you show me afresh if I'm adding anything to what you and you alone have done? The gospel is Jesus only. That's the great news. Show me if I've added something. Show me if I've done anything subtle so I'm relying on my righteousness, my goodness, my works, not yours. Please show me. Here's the second thing we could pray as well. Father, please, I feel cold of heart. Help me to look into the well of your grace again. Help me to see that I am safe and secure in you. Help me to see the treasures that are so much greater than this world offers. Help me to see that fresh. Help me to meditate on your loveliness again at Christmas time. Help me to see through all the trimmings that are so unhelpful to us and help us to marvel at Jesus Christ, who is meek but also majestic. Let's pray together. Father, help us please to marvel at the gospel. It is so easy a child can understand. 
and yet it is so wonderfully simple that the greatest minds cannot. Our pride will stop us from seeing. Our spiritual sight doesn't exist. Our hearing, we're like a deaf person. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who journeyed from heaven to earth to, to save us and to rescue us. As we take cup and take bread, please help us to marvel again at the depth of your grace. And would that, even this morning, even now, at half past eleven or so, would you fill our hearts afresh with joy because we grasp who Jesus is afresh, I pray. Amen. Andy, could you run and warn the kids that uh, we're ready for them? Either Andy. <laughs> Let's um, meditatively sing. Who is there like you? It's on page four of the service sheet. Behind me as well on the screen. <clears throat> Who is there like you? And meditate and marvel at the fact that uh, the baby who we saw who looked something like the baby we saw on the screen, the Christ child at Christmas, at Easter became the servant king. Let's uh, stand and sing, who is there like you? Who is there like you? And who else would be Suffering in my place, and who could repay you? And all of creation looks to you, and you provide for all you have. Lifting up my hands, lifting up my voice, lifting up your name, and in your grace I rest, for your power of work to me, and set me free, and I'm trusting in your word, trusting in your cross. Trusting in your blood and all your faithfulness For your power at work in me is changing me Who is there like you? Suffering in my place, and who could repay you? And all of creation looks to you as you provide for all you have. 
lifting up your name and in your grace I rest for your love has come to me and set me free and I'm trusting in your word trusting in your cross trusting in your blood and all your faithfulness for your power at work in me is changing me please take your seats I wonder if Dave and John could come and join me children normally seamlessly join us in the last verse, but they've not done that, which is a wonderful provision. This is a family meal, friends, for anyone, whether you are visiting us. This is a family meal for the people of God. If you know that Jesus is your Lord, if you love him, if you are journeying through life with him, if uh, the babe in the crib is not someone who's foreign to you, if you sing, and if you have just sung with uh, a marvel in your spirit, who is there like you? If you know who Jesus is, this table is for you. Come on in. If this is not your experience, if you've, if you've sung those words and they're unfamiliar to you at this point, please stay. Please observe. But please don't take the elements because they're very precious to us. Come on, you lot, horrible lot. Speed up. I'm waiting for you. Um, I want to uh, tell you a story that we read um, from one of our Christmas devotional resources. Let's hold our paper still if we can. Uh, it's a wonderful story written by a lady called Anne Voskamp. Her writing, more often than not, is profoundly helpful. And uh, she wrote about the beginning of Christmas. Uh, but she didn't go to Matthew or to Luke. She went to a book right at the beginning of the Bible. It's called Genesis. And it's uh, an interesting read. They heard God, Adam and Eve, they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Voskamp said something very helpful. She said, do you know that there are well, do you know the first question in the whole of the Bible? We've just read it. It's God asking a question, not of chastisement, not of rebuke. God, the first question he asks in the Bible is a question of love, says Anne Voskamp's devotional. Where are you? It's a pursuing question that reveals in part God's character. God knows where they are. He's not uh, forgotten his GPS has not let them down, or him down. He knows where Adam and Eve are, but he has a heart for them to take responsibility for their actions, and he is pursuing them. Where are you? The first question in the whole Bible. Then she asks the question that I had to look up. Forgive me. What's the first question in the New Testament? If the first question in the Old Testament is, where are you, from God's lips, what is the first question in the New Testament? It's a question from the lips of some shepherds. 
I believe. Where is he? First Minister Paichi Martin. God asks the question, where is he? Excuse me, where are you? And then the shepherds come and say, where is he? And again, it's a question of love because they're pursuing as God pursued us. The shepherds are pursuing one whom they will love and worship and adore. And she very simply, and I ask you a simple question, boys and girls, this. Wise people, wise women, wise men, still ask the same question. Where is he? That's what this table is about. That's what Christmas is about. A God who in his heart is pursuing you. Pursuing you with his love. Pursuing you with his son. It's a tale of two trees. And it's a tale of a God who loves you enough to ask his son to go on an SAS mission from heaven to earth to rescue you and me. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's what we're going to pray for now. Would you pray for the broken body of the Lord Jesus? Thank you, John. Heavenly Father, we know that if we had been able to enter that uh, stable or cave, whatever it was, where the baby Jesus was lying in the manger, then we would have seen a perfectly normal baby, a few pounds in weight, able to cry, needing to nurse at a mother's breast. But we would not have been able to see that uh, in that baby, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, was also present, fully God and fully man. But we thank you, Father, that in order to rescue us, uh, it needed to be God who would rescue us, to make the rescue infinitely um, available, gloriously possible. But it needed to be a proper man, someone of our flesh and blood, someone who would be without sin. We thank you that when the Lord Jesus was stretched out and nailed to the cross, it was a fully human body that was nailed there, and it was truly God who was nailed there too. And we thank you that uh, through that great sacrifice, we are saved. So today, this morning, we thank you for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was offered up in sacrifice, perfect in every way, so that we might be spared from the judgment and have a hope of eternal life. Help us now as we take the bread to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, take bread and do this in remembrance of me until I come. As the bread is distributed, please take it with thankful hearts and eat it as you're served.
like Dave to give thanks for the blood of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder this morning that you did not come to the earth um, to make us slaves, Lord, to make us um, bow the knee to a, a God who doesn't love us, Lord. But you came to rescue us. You came to set us free and to set us free from sin and from death, Lord. Please forgive us for the times that we forget what great cost that came to you, Lord, that it was your precious blood that had to be spilled so that we could be set free, so that we could go and be with you for all eternity in heaven, Lord. We pray, Lord, that as we um, take communion this morning, we would remember the great cost that we were set free, Lord, that how much it cost you and how much you love us, Lord. Please, Lord, let that truth change our lives beyond all recognition. And please let our lives be based on nothing but the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. Please take a cup and please retain it as you're served. Musicians, can I be cheeky? Um, would you be able to just play through who is there like you? If you could do that, that'd be helpful. Thank you. Father, we praise you for your uniqueness. We praise you for your character that asks the question, where are you? And has been pursuing us even before the world was made. 
we recognise that as we gather around the family meal table with uh, our dear friends Dave and Jackie and their loss, we pray to you for them. Please continue to minister to them and the extended family with the loss of Jackie's sister Sharon. Please help them to be a shining light in a very difficult and complex situation. And help us, we pray, to be a people increasingly who can apply the gospel to our situation and who never forget that we've been saved at a great cost. Amen. William Hyam, um, many years ago, wrote a wonderful hymn, Meditating on the Wonder of the Gospel. We're going to end our service by starting to sing, Great is the Gospel. Thank you. Great is the mystery of 